if you're using food, and you know what I mean by using, if you have a habit of binge eating, then food is not just food to you. Food is a way to escape. And if you weren't looking for a way to escape, then food would, would just be food. And you wouldn't be looking at it as a drug. The same with television, with sex or going out or music, whatever it is many of us, many of us use, I would say the majority of people on the planet, from what I can see, use things, use something as a way to escape. And what I'm telling you is that it's possible to live a life. I know it sounds radical. It's possible to live a life where you aren't looking to escape anything, where actually you move towards all of the triggers, all of the pain, which is really the root of what we're trying to escape enormous pain that feels like it's going to topple us over, that feels like it's going to be the death of us if we allow ourselves to feel it. And it's not that we're wrong. It's not that we're wrong by using things to escape this pain. It's that something else is available to us. And do we want to actually make a go of it? make a make a a real honest try to get to that life that quality of life that we know deep in our hearts is uh is like living in you know Gurdjieff called it like a white tower or something that we all have this available to us that life can be supremely magnificent all the time in all of its pain in all of its joy but we can feel fully alive and we can feel deeply magnificent um, on this earth all the time, fully in our power, fully being ourselves, who we were meant to be, embracing our destiny, and that once that is happening, none of these things, like food, like television, none of these things will steal our life force anymore. We simply won't give them, they, they, might, they will be around us. They will exist in the world for some time still. I mean, obviously we need food to live and things like that, but they will no longer be stealing our life force because we will no longer be looking for something to give our life force to that is not our supreme destiny and meaning and purpose in this world. You're listening to the Curb the Binge podcast, and I'm your host, Katya Slavinskaya. I am bringing to you today an interview that I did, a conversation that I had with Lisa Jo Landsberg. She's an incredible Iyengar yogi, first of all. She's an incredible practitioner, and her level of dedication, devotion, and just her deep seriousness about the practice. Um, I don't mean seriousness as any kind of grave thing, but just her level of um, understanding that this is really a real path. And, uh, and, and she takes it that way every day from what I can measure. And 
Um, and she teaches and she's my teacher. She's one of my main teachers. I practice Iyengar yoga and she also is a certified coach. She's a certified hypnotherapist. Um, and she, uh, what was I going to say about that? She, um, she actually in the podcast admits to having her own compulsive behaviors. But here's the thing. What we talk about in the show is compulsion and how at the root of binge eating is a compulsive behavior, which is, um, we define it in the show, but it's this feeling that there's this desire that's bigger than you and you must act on it. And there's really no feeling of choice. So we talk about compulsion. We talk about how all compulsions at the root are the same. And the number one strategy, it's not going to be a quick fix, right? Because life isn't about that. That's not where real change happens. The number one strategy to actually heal compulsion at the root. And I know this works. This is exactly what I do when I got on the on the call with Lisa Joe, she ended up saying basically exactly what I work with every single day, what I come back to when I learn time and time again that the quick fixes don't really fix. So take a listen. Um, before I press play, I wanted to just talk a little bit of shop. There's um, a new private Facebook group. There's been a Facebook page, Curb the Binge Facebook page for a long time. And what I've noticed is that many, many of us don't really want to get on there. Many people don't want to get on there and spill the beans about their behavior, about their um, addiction, about their habits. And that is understandable. So I decided to create a private Facebook group. It's entirely private, meaning not only can people outside of the group not see the posts, they can't even see who's in the group. And um, it'll be very easy my hope is that that it'll be very easy for you to just keep this entirely um, as low profile as you need it to be in your life for the healing that uh, is happening that that needs to happen for you right now. So if you want to be a part of the private Facebook group, um, then email info at curbthebinge.com, info at curbthebinge.com and just say, hey, I want to be part of the Facebook group. So why would you want to be part of the Facebook group? Um, well, we're going to have conversations there. That's mainly the main thing, right? On the Facebook page, I post a lot of inspirational material. I post links to blogs and podcasts on the site. However, in the private Facebook group, this is really your chance and a chance for all of us to speak with each other. Um, and that healing community, I absolutely just know in my heart and from my experience that having people to share your experience with, um, especially the experiences that are not rainbows and butterflies, is really, really key to actually moving forward to feeling like you're not alone, normalizing all of these things because everybody has them, um, whether it's binge eating or another form normalizing them and using that as a jumping off point to actually be facing what it is that we want to change in this life. If you want to be a part of the group, 
Again, email info at curbthebinge.com. Okay, here's the show. And remember to listen all the way through. At the end, I will be um, giving a little gift from my heart that resonates with the talk. Um, And there's always the possibility of a few little last notes at the end there in the conclusion. All right, enjoy. I'm so happy to be here today with Lisa Jo Landsberg, who is a certified Iyengar yoga instructor. She's one of my main uh, yoga instructors and been a huge influence in my life, especially in recent years. She's uh, on the Iyengar Yoga Yoga National Association of the United States. She um, does ethics and scholarship committee work. And she also offers offers her services uh, as a certified coach and a certified clinical hypnotherapist. So thanks for being here today, Lisa Jo. Thanks for having me, Katya. I am... um, I'm really interested to talk to you today. And, you know, we talked a little bit before we started recording. And I would love to, you know, to have you say a little bit more about yourself. And I just, you know, based on what we're talking about, I have this, um, this feeling that I just want to lay out right away. This idea that, you know, binge eating is... Um, is kind of a tricky addiction, right? If we go from the point of view of like just working with addictions, binge eating is a tricky one because it's not like, you know, alcohol or drugs that you can just keep yourself from completely, right? It's, it's food. We need food. It's always around us. So I love that we kind of decided to talk about compulsion because we're getting more to the root of, of the actual, um, instability or, or what's happening. So let's talk about that more. Let's dive in. Would you kind of just tell us a little bit about why you would even, you know, agree? And I'm so happy that you did, but why you would even agree or be interested to talk about this subject? Absolutely. Thank you. My desire and purpose has always been to be of service and be of service to others uh, through transparency. One, one way is by being transparent. That means being fully open and honest about my own personal condition and circumstance because we're all in it together. And people that are experts are only experts if they really have understood and experienced from direct experience. Mm. And as far as compulsion goes, I have had my own experience and discomfort with compulsion in two ways. Um, One, controlling my external environment, one would say, kind of an OCD. Some people know it as obsessive compulsive. This is the act of creating order in in one's ex- external world. So the physical world, having it to be very orderly. And mm-hmm. the second is hair pulling, which has a, uh, has a technical term for it, but I think everybody knows what that is. Mm-hmm. So the hair pulling started when I was very young. And interestingly, it started at a time when there was a lot of disharmony in the family at some very core level. Um, and then probably the orderly environment stuff started right around the same time. Wow. So those are two experiences that I have, uh, that I've grown up with, that I've dealt with, that come back and forth into my life at times mm-hmm. when the world seems to get out of order for me or my internal world gets out of order. 
And I've worked with these compulsions uh, for many, many years. And so that's the place that I'm coming from in the way that I describe what it is, how to deal with it, what's helped me personally. Um, and also I think what some experts say too. So let's talk about compulsion because, you know, you, you, you obviously haven't been a binge eater from what you're saying and thank you for sharing so candidly. Um, but, but I think all of us on the call that are listening can understand without really needing any kind of expert or authority opinion on this, that at the root, we're talking about the same thing. So can we talk a little bit about compulsion and what that is? Absolutely. So for the purposes of today, I looked up a couple of definitions of compulsion to see what the dictionary had to say. And there are two definitions that I found that I think relate to our conversation today. One is a very strong desire. And I want to just point out the word desire, a very strong desire to do something. Um, and then another is a strong, usually irresistible desire, again, the word desire, or impulse to perform an act, um, especially one that is irrational or contrary to one's will. I find that really interesting, that is especially weird. one that is irrational or contrary to one's will. So this is a takeover of what you, you, and when I say you, I think the bigger you, the you that's really the wise you the you that knows what's best in the big sense. So yeah. it's contrary to what the big you knows to be good for yourself. Um, so really we, we look at compulsion or I've considered compulsion and this is now moving into a yogic idea as a mental imbalance. And it essentially, the compulsion, that desire to act comes from, an essential discomfort, an essential insecurity, an essential restlessness. Um, And so that's really where compulsion comes from. And from a yogic perspective, the mental imbalance is what we're trying to look at, consider, hold, and heal. Well, I love that to start because there's the word heal in there. Um, and so that gives us the, the reassurance or the, the feeling that we don't have to um, just put a Band-Aid on this. Or yeah. And healing, healing is happening. Yeah, sorry to interrupt you. And healing is happening in every moment. You know, I think that many of us who are on a journey of healing feel like someday I'll be fixed. Someday this will be gone. So from my own perspective, my hair pulling comes and goes. I still pull my hair. I still actually pull hair out of my head. Thank you. I know I know well enough to what? Thank you so much for saying that. Yeah. It's just great. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, when I was young and, and when I didn't know what was going on, I would dissociate. So you know, there are three ways that you might deal with a compulsion dissociation so you can numb out so you don't have to feel that discomfort that insecurity or that restlessness you can you can fill it with an addiction you Mm -hmm. can smoke or drink or take drugs or have a sexual addiction or whatever else it's also a way of dissociating in a way yes um and then the third is you can be aggressive and mean and you can attack others or, or or yourself 
And in compulsions, we, we do both. We attack others or we attack ourselves. Wait, can you backtrack for a second? So, yeah. but if it's just dissociation, so that first way that you were talking about, what, I mean, so dissociating and then doing what? Just kind of going about daily tasks, but without the presence and awareness there? Is that what dissociation is? Dissociation is when you disconnect from your feelings mm-hmm. and you use some mechanism to disconnect so you don't have to feel the discomfort. Right. Yeah. All right. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And so, you know, so we have this mental imbalance. We, we, we know that it's, you know, we're doing whatever the act is. Let's just use hair, hair pulling. We do it so that I don't have, I don't have to feel the insecurity. Now in my case, the insecurity and the discomfort and the restlessness was that there was very significant um, discord going on in the home environment And there was a lot of, uh, you know, there was a lot of rage, there was a lot of anger, there was a lot of yelling, there was a lot of that. So Mm -hmm. the insecurity, the restlessness, and the discomfort came from not knowing how to deal with that as a young person and wanting to check out, wanting to find a place of safety. So when you pull your hair, you're touching something, you're feeling something, but you're not feeling your feelings. You're feeling something that is external to you, it's a piece of hair, it has a sensation to it. It has a texture to it. And it allows me to go there instead of going into the deeper feelings, which is, wow, this feels really bad. I don't want to feel this. Yeah. Is my family going to come apart? You know, so that that's what the hair pulling does. And that's what washing hands does. And that's what organizing your external world. That's what all those things do. That you use that thing to keep you from touching the place that you don't want to touch, which is extreme pain, extreme discomfort. Um, and, and, you know, there are many remedies, but we have to remember, as I was saying before, that the remedies are ongoing. We're in a human state. It's a fluid state. It's not a fixed state. Mm-hmm. Things come and go. You know, you have stresses that come into your life. People come, people go. Family, you know, a, a relative dies or you have an extreme health issue. There are all kinds of things that happen in life that mind, cause. Yes. Do you mind? Do you mind sharing how old you are? I mean, I know this is a little taboo, right? But but the thing is that it's just important to me because you know I look at some of my you know my teachers that have you know if you don't mind me saying like I've seen you I, I've known you long enough and I've studied with you long enough to see you go through some things yourself and it's been so kind of like I feel like you've gotten closer to your students, or at least that's been my experience by, you know, in those moments when you were dealing with your own things. And, um, and to me that just, that speaks to like, well, well, what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to get at is it's inspiring for me to see that somebody, you know, that's lived a lot more life than I have still kind of goes through things and deals with things. So that kind of goes back to that issue of that it's fluid and that we're not looking to be fixed. So do you mind just like, just sharing with us how old you are? Is yeah, that- I'm, in my, I'm in my late 50s. I never tell my exact age and that is an honoring of both my grandmothers who never did either. Oh, but I'm in my late no, 50s. Cool. Yeah. And, and I just want to say one thing about the healing. I've healed myself to a great extent and I want to be very clear that while I still have these compulsions, if they were at on a scale of one to ten, if you know ten is the worst, yeah. when I was growing up, they were they could have been a nine or a ten. 
now they've come down to a one or a two or sometimes a zero. Right. So I want to just talk about how they are still there and maybe someday they will be gone, but I don't expect that they will be gone. Right. I, I live with them as friends. Because oh. One of the problems is, is when you don't live with your compulsion as a friend, if you hate that compulsion, it's, it creates a, uh, it creates a division in your heart, a division in your psyche. And so as Rumi says, you invite all of the friends into your house, all of the ones that are troubled. You invite them all in and you make friends with them. I think it's called The Guest House. It's a beautiful poem. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and so I want to talk about just yoga for a minute because many people misunderstand yoga mm-hmm. as a method for doing postures which heal the body physically and maybe mentally through some spiritual aspects. Well, yoga uses the body as a vehicle, but the body is only a vehicle for training the mind. And Patanjali, who wrote the Yoga Sutras and many others who talked about yoga, including Swatmarama, who who wrote the Hatha Yoga Pradipika and many other great yoga texts, yoga is training for the mind. Yoga is to stabilize the mind. And BKS Iyengar, who is my teacher, um, and I'm in I'm in the system of Iyengar yoga, was a very unique yogi in that he brought yoga up, and meaning that he brought asana or their postures to a heightened level. But in the early days of yoga, asanas were really low on the totem pole, and asanas are the mm-hmm. postures that we do. Asanas were used by the ancient yogis to straighten their spine, to create more concentration so that they could meditate for longer periods of time. And that's pretty much was the, that was pretty much the role of asana. But Iyengar has been noted by many scholars as a contemporary yogi who elevated postures to a vehicle for meditation, as a vehicle for transforming consciousness, as a method for training the mind. So he used yoga asana as a way to look at oneself to increase observation and concentration and absorption so one could really get to the core of one's being. And what Iyengar always talked about was moving from the periphery to the core. And once you touch that core, we can say the soul. And in yoga philosophy, we actually say God. So you move from that soul back out to the skin, the skin being the periphery. And so there's this constant play of coming from the outside in and from the inside out and taking that divine wisdom to the surface. And so over time, as, as we look at creating balance and integration, the discomfort, the insecurity, the restlessness, which is in the mind, because remember, we talked about compulsion being a mental imbalance when we first started. Mm-hmm. As we talk about healing through yoga by training the mind, we in fact get to the very root of the problem, which is a mental imbalance. We talk in yoga about different layers, and we call them sheaths, or we call them koshas. And I won't get into specifically all of what they are, but one of the layers is the physical layer, another is the mental layer, another is the intellectual layer. So in yoga, we're looking to establish a kind of cooperation, a fluid cooperation and integration of these layers so that they're working in concert with each other, they're working in a fluid and balanced way so that the mind is at ease. And ultimately, the goal of yoga is to quiet the mind. That, that's the goal of yoga. That's what Patanjali says at the very beginning. He says, yoga 
is chitta vritti nirodaha. It's quieting, if you will, or restraining the noise of the mind. And it's, it's, it's defined in many ways, controlling the fluctuations of the mind, stilling the stuff of the mind. It's, 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 in many ways it's said, but in essence it's quieting the mind. So this compulsion comes from the mental imbalance. It comes from this inability to stay with the discomfort. So, you know, how, how, do, we, how do we do that? You know, what's the path? If we know that that's the definition, if we understand that I have an imbalance, my hair pulling and my organizing my outside world is to alleviate the discomfort of my inner world, you know, what do I do with that? Right. Um, and, and so, you know, the mind is very stubborn. In fact, um, in the Bhagavad Gita, which is another sacred text, and it's a beautiful text because it's, it's really a devotional text. So for those of you who are listening who really love the devotional aspects, this, this is a devotional text. And this is Krishna, who is an embodiment of, of God. He's a broker, if you will, mm -hmm. in modern terms. Mm -hmm. He's speaking with Krishna, who's the noble warrior. Krishna is eligible because he's ethically and morally capable of receiving this great sacred knowledge. So Arjuna is, Krishna is teaching Arjuna, this noble warrior. And Arjuna says to Krishna, Krishna, you've told me of yoga as communion with the universal spirit. But how can this be permanent since the mind is so restless and inconsistent? The mind is impetuous and stubborn, strong and willful, as difficult to harness as the wind. Now, anybody who's struggled with compulsion knows what that feels like. This is absolutely uncontrollable. Right. I, I, I don't have a chance. This, this thing is stronger than me. I have to binge eat. Yeah. I don't have any control. I have to pull my hair. I don't have any control, right? And right. Krishna says, yes, undoubtedly the mind is restless and hard to control. So he acknowledges. He says, yes, that's true. Yeah. But it can be trained. And he says there are two ways to train it. So I'm going to just pause there because that's the teaser. Maybe you have a question and then we'll talk about how you get into training. No, I want to hear. I want to hear the two ways. <laughs> well... Well, here's the thing. Um, there's no magic bullet. So you have to understand that if you don't floss your teeth, by the end of the week, your teeth are going to be whatever they're going to be, but they're not going to be what they were if you floss them every day. You know, yeah. clear. So the thing about practice is that if you have the motivation and the desire, the positive desire, so we talked about compulsion as a negative desire. But if you have the positive desire to heal yourself and to be a whole, complete, and well person, knowing it's a fluid state, knowing there will be backtracking, but you have that desire to honestly and consistently move toward a path of healing, then you have to practice consistently, and you have to practice regularly, and you have to practice ongoing, and you have to practice for many years, and you have to practice with devotion. And so Krishna says, undoubtedly the mind is restless and hard to control. But it can be trained by constant practice and by freedom from desire. So that's it. That's what he says. Practice and freedom from desire. Mm -hmm. So how do you free yourself from desire when it's constantly 
pulling at you. That's right. How do you? Well, exposure. Mm. You have to expose yourself to the discomfort. Mm. And, you know, in modern psychology, some of you are familiar with exposure therapy. So there was a show on television that I watched some years ago that was about uh, obsessive compulsive disorders and how modern, because I was interested in how modern therapy dealt with it. And I thought it was very interesting. This is exactly what we do in yoga. Uh, And in modern terms, it might be called exposure therapy. So think of it like this. I binge eat or I pull my hair because I don't want to feel those ugly, dark, depressed, insecure feelings. Yeah. But if I don't eat, if I don't pull my hair, I'm exposed to those feelings. Yes. And now how can I stay? Well, one way of staying with those feelings is to use the breath to breathe and to actually welcome the discomfort. Because here's what I've learned personally, and I'm now sharing something that is very true in my own personal experience. I have sat on my mat, I have sat in my yoga room, and that discomfort comes and I stay. And I want to literally tear my hair out. I'm crying, I'm sitting there. No yoga pose is gonna take that feeling away. I might sit in Baddha Konasana, that's a posture where you just sit with the soles of your feet together. I'm sitting in some yogic posture and I'm staying. Oh. I might be in a back bend. I might be doing something else and the feeling comes up and I stay. Wow. And I let the feelings come through. I let it come through my body and I breathe. And I tell myself, it's okay. You've been here before. This passes and you come back to a neutral state. So we're trying to reach a neutral state, which is what Krishna says when he says, freedom from desire. Freedom from desire, in this circumstance, I'm calling a neutral state where you're not being pulled by the compulsion or the desire to drive yourself towards some unhealthy habit. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. And it's interesting, you know, a few things come to mind. One of them is that I've been doing research on suicide hotlines. I've been thinking about volunteering on one. And I, you know, I was doing this research and reading people's experiences as working as, you know, as these volunteers. And um, one of them said, you know, that this woman, she's been doing it for 15 years and she's a high school teacher, but she goes and donates her time to this as a volunteer. And she says that she always thinks of it as getting people through that moment, right? you know, just through that moment, because she knows that once they're through that moment, they might not know this when they're actually feeling that way. But she knows that once they're through that moment, you know, they'll, it's like weather and the clouds won't be there forever. Um, So it, you know, it's, it's always a reminder because I feel like when the compulsion is there, even if, you know, and I've been working with my own binge eating for 17 years or so, you know, and, and definitely it's like even now and, and me as well, it's, you know, maybe at a one or a two at this point, but even now when it comes, it's, I, I forget, I forget that I'm going to get to the other side. Right. Right. And that's a really, Katya, that's a really important thing. So one has to develop some device mechanism, a mnemonic device or a reminder that helps you remember that you do return to the neutral state. And I think weather is a very good analogy or metaphor for what's happening with the mind. Because 
it is a hormonal response when you have a fear response or insecurity or restlessness or that strong compulsion energy comes up your body is literally being flooded with hormones that are telling you to run to flee to exit um and so if you stay it does resolve and it's honestly about 90 seconds oh wow and and it feels like forever but it's surprising if you stay with it and you start to practice this exposure to the weather the storm passes in about 90 seconds and this is a very powerful thing that when you repeat this again and again and again you have so much experience that you know and you're like here comes that wave I'm getting on the surfboard and I'm going to ride this wave because I know that this is going to pass that it's it's that moment yeah and every time and every time you do it with love now this is an important thing and we'll talk about love and self-care in a minute but every time you do it and you don't run away you are building muscle toward training your nervous system to stay and to stay with a kindness with a self-kindness with a self-love yeah and one thing that feels resonant for me right now is you know what you're saying from the yogic perspective that you return to a neutral state and there's another you know very scientific perspective out there that comes from studying the brain cognitive sciences that talks about willpower and how you know how like willpower is a measurable thing now and and they say you know that like the more you exercise willpower the more that it's like you know if you if you stay if you don't do that behavior the compulsion then it it builds that muscle to stay with it so it's just the yogic perspective is saying the same thing the cognitive science perspective is saying the same thing um but then but then one question that does come up for me lisa joe is you know there is a perspective out there in the binge eating world right now that says that binging is actually a reaction to um what's the word to to denying yourself something to deprivation mm-hmm. so it's like you know maybe you've deprived yourself or even gone to the point of you know if we can talk about anorexia or a clinical term but but just depriving yourself or being you know so strict on a diet that you've deprived yourself for so long and then some part of you comes out and says no way i'm going to you know if you're going to do that to me i'm going to get you back or something or you know you can't you can't suppress that and it comes back in the form of a binge so there are you know there there's there are perspectives out there that say that uh, deprivation actually causes binge eating. And I'm curious, you know, because my, my kind of initial just intuitive feeling about this is that the deprivation, if it doesn't come from a place of love, just to go back to what you were just saying is in itself a compulsion. Deprivation is a compulsion. It's the other side of binge. They're the same thing. Right. Um, they're the same thing. Right. So it's attachment, aversion, attachment, aversion. So yeah. that's also in yoga. I want to go back to one thing you said about willpower. That if you flex the muscle and the willpower, that the cognitive, you know, the cognitive side says that. I'm not a psychologist, although I do have my bachelor of science in psychology. Mm-hmm. But the willpower has to be a positive willpower. And this is really important. You cannot create a foe 
and be an enemy against your compulsion. Right. So this is my experience and my understanding from my direct experiences that the healing has come by welcoming those in and giving them a space to be held and to be cared for and to be nurtured and to be loved. I don't know about the binge and the deprivation specifically that you're talking about from a medical perspective, but what I can tell you is that uh, binge eating and deprivation, I believe the root comes from a self-loathing, from a self-hatred, from a self lack of self-respect, from a Mm. lack of understanding how to self-nurture and nourish. So if you're deprived and you say, you know, well, F that, I'm just going to eat whatever I want, but you just keep eating, that is really destroying the health of the being. That's also Mm. not nurturing. That's also not self-love. So It's it it's not it, it might come from well I've deprived myself but now I'm going to the other extreme so I'm going to burst myself kill myself with eating yeah. um, I'm going to do the opposite it's the same root it's the same root which is I don't I don't know how to care for myself in a balanced way that's right. I don't know how to deal with this restlessness so I'm either not going to eat at all or I'm going to eat way too much if you go underneath it. I, my experience is if you go underneath it, you're going to find discomfort, restlessness, and insecurity. If you stop somebody from binge eating or you make somebody eat that doesn't want to eat, that's depriving themselves, they're both going to probably feel the same thing. Intense discomfort, fear, pain, anxiety, whatever you want to put in that bucket, right? So for me, the healing comes from how do you create a self-nurturing, a self-loving environment as you train your nervous system to stay with those feelings? I, I think therapy is really important. I want to be really clear. Um, I, w- I just want to point out that many years ago, there was somebody in our yoga community who committed suicide. Yeah. And um, one of our senior teachers came to town and said to everybody, I want to be really clear with all of you here right now that, think yoga, that thinks yoga will cure everything. It doesn't. Some people need medicine, some people need therapy. So I'm saying here very clearly and with my own, you know, sense of experience, get help, get professional help. If you have a serious eating disorder or a serious compulsion that takes you away from having a life that is controlling you to the extent that you are isolating yourself, that you are missing work or you're missing relationships or you have intense depression or anxiety, get to see a professional. So as much as therapy is, uh, yoga can be therapeutic in its modality, it's not the be-all and all is certainly my main, you know, my main love and passion for me is yoga, but I, being transparent here, I've had a lot of therapy. I've gone through Mm -hmm. a lot of therapy in my life. And so there's that. I just want to be very clear about that. Yeah, I um, really echo that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. I also wanted to say that <clears throat> this idea of, um, so there's an idea in Buddhism that, and an idea in yoga also, which is that the natural state of being is a state of openness. Buddhists call it open awareness. Um, the yogis call it the um, the state of samadhi, which is a state of absorption in the, the true, true nature of oneself. 
which is open, luminous, present, loving, kind, merciful. So there's this state of existence that's available and it's existing all the time. It's a fluid state. It's not static. It's existing. It, it exists. It's who we are. And when we open ourselves up to that self-love and we allow ourselves to exist in the present moment, seeing the openness of the sky like ourselves, the openness of our heart like the openness of the sky, and we allow those what had been enemies to rest with us, the muscle of compassion develops, muscle of tolerance develops, the muscle of exposure develops, and we develop warmth and love toward ourselves. You have to you have to cultivate friendliness, kindness, and love toward yourself. Whatever comes up, if you judge yourself and you're harshly critical to yourself, you might say, oh, I know you. You've been around a very long time. And you've been around so long that I feel like you're my oldest friend. So why don't you come and join me? I'm actually just going to sit here and practice while you go off and make your critical judgments. You can, you can, you can hang out, but I'm just going to go ahead and practice anyway. Mm. Because if you create a condition where you say, go away, or mm. your willpower comes from a negative place, right. I hate that, I won't do that, then you are breaking your psyche into two parts, the bad and the good. And as long as you create a divisive state of mind or a disunified or a you know, deconstructed state of mind, your psyche will be fractured and you won't integrate and you will, you will actually strengthen the habit. So the way through the habit is to accept all of the feelings, the states of mind, the voices, the vibrations, and coexist with them and develop a mantra or a meaningful way of creating warmth toward yourself, of love toward yourself, of kindness toward yourself, of nurturing toward yourself. Um, that's, that's really hard to do for those of us that have been so used to being self-critical. I can tell you that I have never met a person. I know a lot of women, and I don't think I've met any men with an eating disorder, but of course it's not, you know, just women. Yeah. But I, the, the women that I know that have had eating disorders, are they all have one thing in common. And I'll just ask you do, you, do you have any idea what that might be? Well, I'm kind of thinking a part of me is nervous that you might say that self-loathing thing that you were saying earlier. Um, which is, you know, pointing me towards some of my triggers, but, uh, what else? I don't know. I mean, maybe a difficult childhood, but I would say, no, that, that, that would be a little too obvious. Maybe the self-loathing, what is it? It's, I, I, I believe it's self-criticism. Mm, self-criticism. Yeah. I think it's judgment and criticism. And, and let me be clear about the self-loathing because that's really scary for people. Yeah. You mean you're saying that I might hate myself? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I actually am. I'm saying that. I'm saying that you might really not like yourself. You might really, and there might really be, and by you, I mean your ego mm -hmm. has developed an idea that you're not worthy. And so the you, which let's call the big you, the divine you, the sacred you, the the, the goddess you, the, the infinite, open, spacious, mm -hmm. loving, tolerant, present, that you is perfect. And the oh, you that is developed by the ego is never good enough. It's never smart enough. It's always comparing yourself to somebody else. 
it's not loving toward yourself. No. And so, so you can say, am I really, do I really hate myself? Well, you know, if you're constantly putting yourself down, if you're constantly comparing yourself, judging yourself, measuring yourself, making yourself bad, that's mm-hmm. a form of self-hatred. It's like that self-talk, right? If we pay attention to the actual internal dialogue or monologue that's happening all the time, I think of it more as a dialogue because it definitely feels like it's talking to you sometimes, right? And that sometimes that language, we don't, if we are not actually conscious of, okay, this is my internal dialogue and we just take it to be truth, you know, in the worst case, we just believe everything it's saying, then we can really, we can really dig ourselves into a place. But when we notice that, and then we get that, that awareness that we can actually start to change it, is that, so when, you know, when you're talking about, I have a question, when you're talking about self-nurturance, I mean, when you say that, I I feel this part inside of me go limp, because I know for a fact that, you know, this is something basic that I was never educated on. Um, And, you know, it's very much like a part of me that still needs a lot of healing. And, um, and like you said, like, you know, some days it's, it's great. And I feel so loving towards myself and other days I'm like, I don't even know what's wrong, but you know, but the nurture self nurturance piece is not there. So, you know, my immediate reaction, like my gut reaction was, Oh no, what if this is some lesson that I just missed that Lisa Joe was talking about and I can never get it again. Like it's too late to actually learn how to self-nurture because I didn't, it wasn't built into the, into the foundation. Right. It's a great point, Katya. And so what I'm catching here, and this is really important for everyone to hear, is that you have now identified how the ego wants to grab a hold of something. I said self-nurturing and, and our mm-hmm. egos go, oh, I have to self-nurture. Yeah. I have to set up a program and I have to eat properly and I have to exercise properly. And if I don't do that, then I'm not self-nurturing. Yes. No, that is not what self-nurturing is. So let's be very clear. The ego wants to constantly make plans, projections, and start talking to you about what you're doing or what you're not doing. That's so really true. good, Katya. You did it today. You really self-nurtured today. Yay, Lisa. You, yeah. you did your yoga practice today. Or yesterday, you didn't do it. That was bad. That is not self-nurturing, no matter if you're on a program or not on a program. Here's what real self-nurturing is, and you use the word awareness. Awareness is not your ego. Awareness is the magnificent you that is allowing everything to exist and to expose yourself to all the feelings without running away. Mm. That is self-nurturing. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's good or it's bad. It's high or it's low. It's up or it's down. It's in or it's out. If you're aware and you're watching it, you are self-nurturing. Well, I really wasn't very kind to Katya on that conversation yesterday. Hmm. I'm aware of that. And that just feels like the weather to me again. Like, because the weather happens, right? I mean, no matter how many times I feel like I've touched that samadhi state in one way or another, the weather still happens. Correct. Now, here's the thing. We want to polish our behaviors. 
it doesn't mean that if you're an abusive person that you can just be aware of being abusive and keep being abusive, right? I'm not saying that either. Let's be really clear. There are behaviors, there are moral and ethical precepts, nonviolence and truth. And if you don't do them and you're aware of it, you're like, I really, I need to fix these things. And there are deal breakers in life. You don't kill things. You don't steal things. You don't lie about things, right? There are, Mm -hmm. there are deal breakers. And so that's why we have the yamas and the niyamas in yoga, because they're the foundation of our house. They are the moral and ethical precepts, the moral and ethical foundations that help us live a good life. Now, the thing is that if you fall off of a moral and ethical precept, you, you want to polish yourself. You want to be better. But imagine the difficulty of somebody who's been imprisoned, truly imprisoned because they've done terrible things. How do they dig themselves out of a hole? If, if you've murdered somebody and you're in prison, how do you live with yourself for the rest of your life? That's through right. the act of forgiveness and through the act of self-love and self-forgiveness. And by fixing yourself so that you would never commit that again. Right. And so, you know, and so you, there is a place where we have to create, we have to polish and we have to refine and we have to mend and heal, but at the same time, nourish ourselves by being aware so the, the ego wants to grab onto things, as I said before, and say, well, now I'm going to self-nourish by making this program for myself. So please understand that when I say awareness is self-nourishing, we have to balance that with taking action that's positive action. You can't sit in your house and expect the world to change. And I think a lot of people that read The Secret a long time ago got really confused about what she was talking about. Oh, I just think of these beautiful things and then things will change. No, Patanjali is very clear. You have to practice, and Krishna said that too, you have to practice. Because if you don't practice, and you might practice through mantra, you might practice by saying sacred sounds, you might practice by doing great service and devotional work in your community or with your family, you might practice by practicing yoga asanas and by doing um, other ways in which yoga can help you serve, but you have to practice in some way and refine. And, yeah, right. But if the other piece isn't there, the awareness isn't there, then especially for a compulsive mind, those things, I've seen it in myself, service, any of these things can become a way of hating yourself and can Correct. become a way of, of, of abusing yourself, and so can meditation. Right. And in fact, I recently talked with a, neuro, a neuroscientist, a very interesting man, who said that he had met some of the greatest practitioners, meditation practitioners. Um, these were very senior, very senior Buddhist practitioners who had strong mental addictions and compulsions, and they weren't being fixed by their meditation. In fact, the meditation was actually even making it worse. Wow. They had the idea that the more they practiced, the more they worked, the more they worked, the more they practiced, the more they were going to fix this. And in fact, it was just strengthening the habit. So what's the way out? The way out is through the big bomb of love. It's self-love. It's love and tolerance. It's patience and kindness. And it's practice. And in the, in the Bhagavad Gita, which I referenced earlier, Krishna talks a lot about releasing if there's one message of the Bhagavad Gita it's this whatever you do you do as an act of devotion as an act of love 
uh, as an act of your aspiration to merge with the divine. And at the same time, in your practice, you have to let go, absolutely, completely let go, relinquish the fruits of your labor, relinquish the fruits of your action. Because in yogic terms, that creates more karma, it creates more stuff to do, if you will. So there has to be some way of doing and also, I would say, relaxing I mean, it's maybe that's an easy way for us to think about it. Can I had a friend recently who texted me and she was wound up. She just got so wound up about something that was going on with a new man that she's dating. Mm-hmm. And she started creating a compulsion. She started thinking about what he might be doing. Or she had all these ideas. And I could see in her text that there was a strong compulsion. She said, what do I do? And I sent her back a text that said, relax. Yes. Relax. And send warm feelings toward your own self. Bring the part of you that's so afraid close into your heart and hold her close and be kind and be warm to her. And she said, oh, my God, I'm going to read that over and over and over again. A relaxed mind can solve anything, right? When we're in that deep alpha place. Yeah, and I think a relaxed mind can just exist. I don't think we have, even have to think of it as solving things. Right. Yeah. I think it just mm-hmm. is that we can just be because we're a, we're a world and we're a culture of doing. But mm-hmm. I've had the good fortune to travel to other places of the world. And I have this wonderful story of the first time that I went to India. Well, tell. And, and I was, uh, had an apartment and I stayed for several months and I was practicing at the Iyengar Institute and, and this uh, was many, many years ago. And I was invited some Indian friends to my apartment for tea and for cookies. And they came and my roommate and I made tea and cookies and they sat in the living room and we served them and we talked for an hour and we talked for two hours and we talked for two and a half hours and we talked for three hours. And then my roommate and I were kind of done talking and kind of done visiting. And in the Western world, in our world, you know, visitors would know that at this point you get up and you say, thank you very much for having us. And they leave. But our Indian friends just sat there. They just were very relaxed. There was no talking. They stayed. And we we went into the kitchen and we were like, what do we do? What do we say? Do we tell them to go? We We were very nervous and very, because we didn't know how to just relax and be with people without an agenda. These people were relaxed just to be with us. They didn't have to have a discussion. They didn't have to have talk about anything. It was a really big wake up for me. It's like we are such a culture of doing. We are not a culture of being. And I think it absolutely separates people, what you're saying. You know, it's it's an interesting thing. And I, I talk to people a lot about isolation. And, you know, and a lot of the dialogue right now in the binge eating world is about that this is a disease of isolation because people do their compulsions alone. I mean, some, you know, some addictions people do together, but really these kinds of things, I don't know about hair pulling, but... Um, is it something that people do alone? Is it something you do? Yeah, alone? yeah, people do it alone. Yeah, they right. do it. Yeah. Yeah, so it's just, you know, there's a lot of talk about that and and I can really see it like when um when we kind of have this idea that when we're in relationship with a person in a moment, I don't mean in a romantic relationship, but when we're having, you know, when we're relating to somebody that there has to be a conversation or something getting done. 
I just see, you know, now I go to parties, Lisa Joan, this is kind of a tangent, but what you're saying just really struck this chord in me. I go to parties, I actually wrote a blog about this and I see people like exerting themselves so much to under the guise of like having fun, but they're exerting themselves to relate. They're, they're exerting themselves just to have a conversation or to, you know, entertain the other person or whatever they think that they should be doing in that moment. And it's, you know, it's a total tense mind that's behind this. And I look, you know, seeing it from this meta perspective, I just feel like, oh my God, what's happening is, you know, creating more stress and more tension for everybody. So they go home from this party and there's more isolation. There's more tension. People haven't really connected because true connection to me comes from a place of relaxation. I couldn't agree more. I absolutely wholeheartedly agree. And it's important that everyone hears what Katya just said. That's so beautiful, Katya, because relaxation and being present is really the grace that's available to each of us in every moment with your breath. Mm. So if, if you can connect with your breath, so if you're watching clouds in the sky, and if you're on in a day when it's kind of mostly clear, but there are a few clouds, they move really slowly and they kind of spread apart in this really slow and easy way. They just really are there, just kind of moving and spreading and changing and morphing. It's just very soft and very gentle and very easy. And the breath is like that. Most of our breath isn't like that because we haven't paid attention to it and we're just breathing. And so nice that it happens without us having to think about it. But if you do start to practice breathing, and not to over-control the breath, because that can be a problem too, but just to gently allow your breath to be a little bit softer, a little bit longer, especially extending your exhalation slightly. This mm -hmm. is a way to relax. So when you extend your inhalation, it actually gives you more energy and excitement. So if you're looking to relax, if you just sort of gently, soft, smooth, slightly longer exhalation, just very simple, even if you're in a conversation with someone and you're feeling tense, if you just all of a sudden remember to pay attention to your breath and just soft, smooth, let your exhalation be a little bit longer, you can quiet your mind, be in the present, relax, truly connect. And I think if you start to do that more and more and more, in fact, you know, if you want to practice, you can say to yourself, you know, I think it's positive to set goals. Let me be clear. You know, we talked about the ego wanting to attach itself to things. There's always a balance. You can't throw it completely away and say, oh, I'm not going to, you know, do anything. I'm going to do everything. What's the middle way, the Buddha said. So the middle way is, let me see if three times today I can find myself out and about, and I actually am just going to do this thing where I pay attention to my breath, and I'm just going to look at someone. If someone's talking to me, if I go to ideal market and I run into someone I know, instead of waiting to talk, I'm just going to really listen to them and just breathe. And I'm going to see if I can do that three times in one day and see what happens. You know, I think these are the small moves that we make to start to train ourselves to relax. Um, so it's another way of following the breath, of using the breath as a vehicle of staying present, of staying with those restless feelings. If you're at a party, it's it, it can be really hard because people are there for typically some kind of purpose, you know, some social purpose, but you can, you can do it at a party. You can do it anywhere. You can just, 
exist. And it might be a really beautiful way for others to have a model of how it is just to be without having an agenda. And I think, you know, what you're, what you're saying, it's like when we actually realize that we can be relaxed and be together, like be in the world, because it's so conditioned that when we walk around life, you know, at work, if we have a nine to five kind of job or an office job or whatever, we're performing, there's like an on switch in the nervous system. When we're socializing, there's the on switch. It seems like we're on all the time. I mean, I couldn't do that. You know, that's part of why I have the lifestyle that I do, but um, I just can't, I can't fathom living that way anymore. And I have to say that learning how to relax has just made all of my relationships feel real, finally, at that, you know? And, and it's made my work in the world feel real. And I don't mean relaxation like flopping about, you know, like you're talking about the middle way, which I love. You talked about this in a yoga class a few weeks ago, and I, I wrote a blog about it. I've been listening, you know, I've been thinking about this ever since. And it's not about flopping about, but it's about this deep sort of feeling that the security that we're looking for is within, you know, it sounds so cliche, but everything that we're looking for is already there. It's in the breath, it's in the present moment, and it's already inside of us. Well, I think that, you know, as we kind of get toward the end of this conversation, I think it's really probably meaningful and important to talk about something that drives compulsion, which is what is the restlessness all about? Yeah. This deep, this deep insecurity. And I'm not saying that this is true for everybody, but at a core, for many of us, it's the fear of the unknown. And you could say fear of death. Yes. Fear of the infinite, fear of groundlessness. Yes. And so we're trying to establish some kind of ground. And as a practitioner, as a practitioner of some formal spiritual practice, you develop the muscle and you train your nervous system to be comfortable with groundlessness. That as much as we would like to, as much as I would like to manufacture and move my external world to organize it so that I don't have to deal with the essential fear of the infinite, the unknown and death. As much as I try to move things around, it's not gonna change it. It's not gonna take it away. It might alleviate for a minute but as I said before, that actually strengthens the negative habit or the negative compulsion. Right. So the groundlessness is there, the infinite is there, and in fact, this is good news. As Pema Children says, she says, this is good news because you become comfortable with the discomfort and you in fact begin to find that there's ground in groundlessness, mm. which, mm. which means it's a different kind of a ground that you could ever imagine. And I can't say that I know what that ground is because I still every day deal with the shakiness of groundlessness. And that's why I practice every day because I go and have a few moments of rest and relaxation. And some days it's really longer and other days it's not so long and some days it's not at all. But I know that it's possible because I felt it. And so I'm looking to expand that comfort with groundlessness, which becomes the ground itself. And eventually, you know, I, I've been around old people a lot lately because my mom is 
recently moved here and she's quite elderly and she's in a place where they're really old and really unwell people and death right. is right there. And so there's this part of me that's become really poignant about becoming comfortable at the end of your life with absolutely relaxing, absolutely relaxing and letting go. And surrender is not something that we do well in this culture. We're addicted to devices. We're addicted to technology. We're addicted to action. We're addicted to doing. And so in yoga, we practice undoing. And this is something that not many people practice or are aware that. In fact, many people that are practicing yoga now in what I call the corner shop yoga pods are practicing doing. Yes. And, and even if they throw in, you know, spiritual words here and there and stuff like that, I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying that it's just another way of doing or adding on activity. I do that with my anger yoga. Right? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm not point. I'm not saying any. I'm not saying that we're better. I I didn't mean to make it. No, like I know, that. but I'm saying you know, even even with all the invitation in the world to be undoing, my own mind turns it into a doing, and I can do right. this with anything. Yep. So Iyengar was brilliant because he knew that you could only undo by doing in a very mindful way. Yes. And so here's where action becomes really important, and. We do the yoga of action. It's called Kriya Yoga. And Kriya Yoga is comprised of three parts. It's comprised of willpower. We talked about that before, which we call tapas. Mm -hmm. It's comprised of the second element, which is self-study. You put forward your willpower and then you study. Well, what's the effect? Right. And I study myself and I look at myself. And then third is absolute surrender. So it's, a, it's kind of a whole eternity. Action, observation, and surrender. And it sounds like the Bhagavad Gita again, practice and letting go, practice and renunciation. Taking action, being willful, taking the right action, and Patanjali will talk about it sometime maybe. What is right action? What is wrong action? Because he does identify right and wrong action. Willpower, secondly, self-study, really looking at what's the effect of that. And then letting go, surrendering, relaxing, absorbing yourself in that groundlessness that becomes the ground. And so these are really important things. You, you must take action. You can't be inactive, but you have to take the right action. You have to do things that create a condition of love, of tolerance, of compassion, of kindness, of mercy. And I want to just say in this political time that we're living in right now, I'm curious to see how all sides are practicing uh, intolerance. Mm. And, and it's, it's very interesting, you know, it, in fact, it was Pema who said, if you just turn the sound down on the television and you watch the faces, everyone's mm. angry. The people that are for something good and the people that are for something that you don't believe in. Everyone yeah, bought into the illusion of the game itself of that the ego's playing. Right. Exactly. So again, it's, it's releasing those negative emotions. It's releasing the self-criticism, the self-doubt, relaxing and practicing self-love, which is just being aware and allowing all the feelings to come and practicing right action, which is doing things that build up yourself and others. And if you practice wrong action, which is you're critical of somebody, you said something mean, then fix it, make it up. 
Go tell mm-hmm. the person you're sorry. Take responsibility for your actions. You know, the world doesn't get better by you shoving it down and breaking off a friendship with somebody. If right. you've done something wrong, then it's your job as a yoga practitioner to walk to that person or call that person or say, I take full responsibility. I was wrong. As a parent, to tell your child, and this is something that my parents did when I was young, they would tell me that they were sorry. And I couldn't, it was just so stunning to me, aside from the things that were going wrong in my life, my parents did a lot of good things, Mm. which was acknowledging when they were wrong and telling me that I was right. And as a kid, hearing that I was right was like, wow. It built a kind of an internal seed of confidence that I think has sprouted to my desire to continue on this very difficult path. That is a really, really awesome thing that you just said. I'm struck and touched by how simple these truths are that you're saying. Like, you know, be kind. Um, Build, you know, do things that build up yourself and others. These things that kind of seem, you know, I mean, they... They're always, they're always going to deliver, you know, and, and it's just like, it's touching how simple it is at the end of the day. Um, even with they're all simple, yeah, they're mm-hmm. simple and, and maybe not always easy because we have so much pride. We have so much pride, you know, and pride is the ego and pride is what, what gets us into trouble and separates us and isolates us. So you talked about isolation, you know, and so it is simple, but not easy. So I want to talk about just maybe as we finish discomfort and if you decide to be uncomfortable, then you're going to grow. And Eleanor Roosevelt said, Mm -hmm. you must do the thing you think you cannot do. That's right. And why should you do that? Well, because it makes you uncomfortable. Well, why should you be uncomfortable? Because it strengthens your muscle to be in front of uncomfortable. Why should you do that? Because you expose yourself and your world expands instead of contracts. Your world becomes larger and more inclusive and more tolerant when you do that. And that's that's where our world and our community uh, really needs to go, is inclusive, tolerant, kind, inclusive, compassionate, uh, tolerant. And so, you know, this is, this is where we're going with ourselves and with our community and with our global, global world because we're all connected. And the more each of us does it individually and makes up for, atones for our wrongs, um, then, it, then we really will be practicing that practice and dispassion and coming into a point of relaxation and comfort with the groundlessness. Comfort with the groundlessness. Thank you so much, Lisa Joe. It's really just, you know, it's been such a pleasure. And every time I sit with you or take a class or in this conversation now, I just feel like something really deep and fundamental and a strength comes, you know, is, is transmitted to me. And I'm really looking forward to that being transferred also to our listeners. So thanks for sharing yourself today. Thank you so much for having me, and um, I really appreciate the opportunity. Without further ado, I want to read to you the poem, The Guest House, by Rumi. The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. 
every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Thank you so much to Lisa Jo Landsberg. You can find her on pearlsofwisdomyoga.com. That's pearlsofwisdomyoga.com, like a string of pearls. If you resonated with Lisa Joe's vibe, I sure do, then go um, to her website. She has coaching available. And I just know she just gets straight to the point with things. She gets to the heart of the matter, and she's here to help. So um, she's an incredible resource for us on this earth. Getting Getting comfortable with discomfort. That is our number one action step to heal all compulsions. And I just want to say that if you try this, it's going to change your life. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. Getting comfortable with discomfort is the gift that keeps on giving. So try it out. Give us a comment. Let us know what you thought of the show, what you find in your experiences trying this out. Uh, Find us also on the Curb the Binge page on Facebook and email me if you want to be part of the Facebook group, info at at curbthebinge.com. Have a lovely one. It's been great sharing this time with you.